Hey, grad students, it is Matt, and I want to uh, put in a quick note at the beginning of this podcast episode just to let you know what you're jumping into. So, number one, welcome to the show. Number two, this is a longer episode than normal. It was actually recorded a little bit ago, and it was recorded in person, and we were streaming live on LinkedIn while we were recording it. So, there are a couple extra dynamics going on in this episode, which I think liven it up a little bit and make it really interesting. And I want to tell you a little bit about the episode itself. So I'm interviewing Brandon Arve, who has a DMA, a doctorate in musical arts. I believe the first DMA that I've interviewed on the podcast. In our conversation, we talk about how he went to grad school for percussion performance at the University of Kentucky, same school I went to for my master's program. And he was planning to teach after grad school, but it, through his experience as a grad student, he realized uh, that his you know, ideal track of becoming a pro- professor was probably not exactly what he wanted to do. And so instead, he actually pivoted to some of his strengths that he honed while he was a grad student and built his own social media management company that he runs today. So I think there's really a lot in this conversation about topics that we typically haven't touched on before on the podcast. And so I think you'll get a lot out of it. A couple of cool things you might take away from the show. One, even though the uh, classical music or music performance aspect of academia doesn't necessarily apply to everyone listening, I think it's a really interesting microcosm for how academia functions when compared to other domains like industry. Um, So even if you're not in the music space or anything near that, I think there are still a lot of cool themes that you can pull away from this show. Also, I think there are other good takeaway lessons like understanding that that when you're a grad student, you are the one driving the ship. And that uh, if you want a certain outcome and you want to achieve something, you're really the one who's going to have to be there, uh, even though there are professors who may help you or are supposed to help you. It's going to be you uh, driving the effort all the way. And then life after grad school matters. That was something that we talked a little bit, and it'll probably end up looking different than you think when you're in grad school, but that is okay. And there are things you can do in grad school to prepare for that life and uh, make sure it's something that you want and something that you enjoy. So I hope you get a lot out of today's episode. I'll have links to several things that we talk about in the show, including Brandon's LinkedIn page. So go connect with him there. The website for his business, Branded78, as well as Brandon's show that he mentions on the podcast, which is the Lexington Business Show. So all links will be available below. Thank you so much for listening and see you on the other side. Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Well, welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for grad students who want to have a career outside of academia after grad school. Today, I'm talking with Brandon. Um, Brandon is a social media manager, entrepreneur, business owner. 
No. <laughs> uh, if you could, Brandon, just introduce yourself. Sure. Talk about what you do, and then we can get into uh, a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we just kind of hinted at it. Uh, I host the Lexington Business Show, which we actually do in this space. Um, so it's kind of interesting, like I was saying before we started, like to be in the host seat yeah. as a guest. So uh, that's fun. Um, so yeah, got the Lexington Business Show, which focuses on interesting people in business, entrepreneurs, creators, athletes, musicians that are just doing cool stuff with content in, mm. in business. Um, so we've had everybody from Ken Coleman from like the Dave Ramsey show, Rich uh, Redman, who's a drummer for Jason Aldean. We just had Jason uh, Moreno, who's yeah. the former videographer for Gary Vee. So really in tons of local people as well. So trying to like bring outside influence and thinking into our market as well, you know, because absolutely. So we're not just in a tight little Lexington bubble. Um, and then, Absolutely. so that's technically under the umbrella of my marketing firm, Branded 78. It's a video production firm. We do everything from content creation, like for social media, video production for commercial and television. Um, and, uh, yeah. Very cool. Very yeah, cool. It's a good and time. just to zoom out a little bit for the, the grad students who will be listening, uh, at a later point, uh, we are in Lexington, Kentucky, and, um, that's where, I live, and that's where Brandon lives. And you, mm -hmm. how long have you been in Lexington, Brandon? It's 10 years now. 10 years. Yeah. Feels longer. Yeah. <laughs> but also to say 10 years seems like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's Absolutely. crazy. Yeah, I moved here in 2012 for school. For school. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. We are, we are going to get into that. Um, actually, let's just get into that first. So sure. you moved here to go to UK. What mm -hmm. did you do at UK? Yeah, I studied uh, percussion performance. So I got a doctorate in musical, doctor of musical arts degree in percussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what, when you were doing your studies, what were you envisioning as like the future of your career? Yeah. So uh, early in my studies, so I went to South Carolina, University of South Carolina for my undergrad where I grew up okay. and um, went there for four and a half years because I, it's technically not a double major kind of was music ed and performance. And um, during that period of college in my thinking was like, I'm either going to teach um, maybe at like high school level. I always kind of had this thing of like, I want to have the biggest impact possible. Sure. And yeah. so I was like, do I try to, do I want to be somebody that's teaching the students early in their career to set them up, you know, with a great foundation from the get? Uh, or do I want to take, you know, students later in their career, which might be a little more interesting for me, you know, creatively because mm -hmm. they're playing more technically and musically interesting things. Yeah. You know, it's not fundamentals. Um, so anyway, that's where my thinking was there. It was like high school or something. Okay. Then so, I went and got a master's and doctorate. And the only reason you do those things really is to teach college. I see. Yeah. So it evolved. Yeah. So from the get go, you were thinking teaching. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I've always enjoyed helping other people do stuff. Yeah. Which I think is like the the natural segue to marketing. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I get um so uh for folks listening, I, I know Brandon because he has put on several events for creatives in the Lexington, Kentucky area. And uh, I just showed up one day, we started chatting, <laughs> and I was like, I make content for grad students. And he was like, oh, I was a grad student once, and, and that, began, uh, that began the conversation. Twice. Twice. That has happened <laughs> twice. Um, 
so going back to grad school, when yeah. when in your experience in grad school did you uh, experience like any kind of shift in your thinking about what you'd actually be doing after you graduate? Man, um, I think I always kind of had something that was uneasy mm -hmm. or like I didn't have clarity about like the real direction. Yeah. Like I think because I was living so much in the four walls of our institution and I wasn't the kind of person at that time to like really look beyond what was happening in the program I was in. Sure. I was very much just relying heavily on the experience and the influence of the people immediately around me. Mm. And so those were the things that influenced my perception of what, you know, being a professional musician would be. Um, and so I would follow like, oh, the grad students, because if I was an undergrad, I'm looking at the grad students as like my next step, right? Yeah. And it's like, whatever they're doing, whether they're traveling the country, um, doing clinics or performing or playing in an orchestra, something like that. Uh, that was definitely something that influenced me and I wanted to do. But the more I looked at it, I was like, okay, I'm only doing that because I see them doing it. Mm -hmm. It's like, what is the real end goal here? You know, um, I don't know if it's being a young kid or, or what, but it seems like young people always ask the question why, and they always give pushback, you know? Um, so I don't know if it was that or if it was me really just on a journey to try to figure out like what, what really is the intent behind all of this. Mm -hmm. But like, I just always ask the question like why about everything, you sure. know, like what's the real intent? I mean, now in marketing, I do that behind like an audience, you know, like, yeah. well, what, what is the audience really getting from this? They're not going to come out and just tell you, you're going to have to infer and kind of figure it out, you know? Yeah. Because if you're really going to serve them, you have to know why they're actually here. Not why they say they're here, not why you think they're here, but why they're actually here, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I was trying to figure out about myself. Like, why am I actually doing the things I'm doing? Um, which I didn't really get that clarity until I think part of the way through my doctorate. Um, I got a lot of great business lessons from the professor at UK. Um, you know, that was like when I started to really off the influence of him and the things that he's done, he's one of the most prolific people in the percussion community. Mm. And, um, actually I think this is his last semester. Oh, he's wow. retiring. Yeah. Um, but on the back of like looking through his worldview and understanding like from his, because he's at the top, he stood out. Sure. I wasn't around somebody like that before until I got to UK. And so everybody else is sort of living more in the middle of the community. He's living on top of the community. So that was the first time I really got to be like behind the scenes of what's it look like to actually be at the top of your game in what we do. And so really trying to pick his brain about everything, about business, about like he, you think about classical music because that's all it primarily was. Um, he was writing and still is writing mostly like educational type things, things that are very rooted in the fundamentals because there's some educational components to it. Hmm. Not something that's meant to be art. So he always called it, it's commerce, it's not art. And that was the first time I ever heard somebody in the creative musical space think about business more than art. 
so that kind of woke me up a little bit to like, okay, so this thinking is okay. Yeah. I should explore that more. What does that mean for me? You know? So anyway, um, I don't know if I'm really answering the question that you asked originally because I've sort of gone down a rabbit hole. No, no, that's uh, a good one. <laughs> so in, in working under him, yeah, I, I'm really interested in, in I, I think a lot of people experience kind of an inflection point either right before the job market, on the job, on the job market, after their first go round on the job yeah. market when they're like, there just aren't that many jobs or, you know, the odds of getting one are much lower than I expected. Yep. Did you have any point? Well, I guess first, did you apply for academic jobs at all? Like at the end of your... I applied time? in the middle of my doctorate. Really? Um, okay. Because a lot of the jobs would be like contingent on getting your, like sure. finishing your degree two, three years, something after you accept the position. Wow. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean, you know, I had a master's at that point. And so I was applying to, like, I won the job at UNC Pembroke, um, and I applied to a handful of others. I got interviews, but didn't win them. Mm -hmm. um, and that whole process, like, I was going through the motions, but never felt 100% into okay. it, you know? Um, literally, UNC Pembroke, which is, like, just across the border from South Carolina, um, that was the first job I applied to really. And I won it, which is a weird thing because most mm -hmm. people probably don't, you know, get to either right. accept or turn down a job on their first shot, you know? And, um, so I feel like that was actually a great thing because it forced me immediately to make real decisions and to really come to terms with like, okay, where am I really at with this whole thing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Cause the whole time I was in school, it's like, okay, well, this is like a 10 year journey. I'll go for my undergrad, master's doctorate, and you're just in school, you know? Um, which you kind of know where you're going to be. You don't know which school, but you know what you're doing. Sure. But then at a certain point you graduate and all that part of the journey is done mm -hmm. and you got to be real with yourself. Like what actually is next, you know, family, kids. Sure. Do those matter? Do they not matter to a person? Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, these jobs, it's like, do I really want to be in the middle of nowhere, Lumbee, North Carolina? Like, mm -hmm. or I think that's where it is. <laughs> I don't remember at this point. It's a long time ago. Um, but yeah, you know, geography, it's like, do I really want to be here? What's the culture of this town? Is this a place I could really call home? Yeah. If I did, is it going to be for a year? Or could I actually see myself here for long term? Um, what are the job opportunities that are here away from just being here? What are the other musical things that I could do? What's available? What's nearby? What would I have to travel for? What, like, just really trying to understand what does all of that look like? And I knew plenty of people that um, they won jobs without a DMA and they never went back and finished. Hmm. Um, I think this was a job that was contingent on finishing anyway, but like, I didn't like the idea of accepting a job being a, you know, basically full-time professor and then also having to be a student to finish a degree, sure. practicing all the time and still doing all of that stuff and going through the nightmare of like the grad school to, yeah. you know, finish everything. So yeah. I ended up turning it down. Okay. Yeah. Cause you know, great position to be in and you know, you gotta, it's like, 
I've seen plenty of people that were right in front of me that were auditioning and, and trying mm-hmm. to get gigs that still hadn't had jobs. Yeah. And so I knew it was a big roll of the dice. Like I'm going to turn this job down, but yeah. you know, like I've always trusted my gut. My gut was definitely saying, Mm-mm. yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of grad students, if they do get like a faculty position offer, it's hard to turn down because I think very few people will get multiple offers when they go on the job market, at least in the social sciences, which is where I'm from. And, um, yeah, you're fighting to get an offer and you don't know if you'll get another one. And if you take that one, you don't know, it could be like five years before, you are able to get another faculty position. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things, and I think we talked about this when we first met was like, I was seeing some of the people that were like the best players in the world at what they do. Young kids that are just fresh out of conservatory overseas. Like they're coming here to get jobs and they're going to the middle of Kansas Mm -hmm. to some community college as a visiting professor. They're not even like full time really. It's all adjunct. Yep. And I was like, these are the best people at what they do, and they're getting the the lowest paying jobs. What in the world is going to be left for somebody like me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm a good player, not the best player. Mm-hmm. I'm a great teacher more than I am player. So, like, trying to be honest about my skill set too. Sure. You know, um, yeah. So that was just like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, and there's a lot of other aspects too of questioning like why are we doing what we're doing Absolutely. you know we can yeah. get into that too <laughs> yeah so did you go on the job market again later in your grad program oh i mean i was still like always applying to stuff. always applying yeah okay um yeah it, like there would just be seasons of like a lot of jobs mm-hmm. and then seasons of hardly anything you know yeah uh and to give it context i mean this is really only over the span of like three years, mm-hmm. you know, DMA program was three years. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's another interesting aspect about the, the academic job market is that unpredictability. And there is the seasonality, of course, like all the jobs come out in the fall. And see then, if we have any comments. Absolutely. And then they're all wrapped up by the spring to summer. And um, I remember when I went on the job market, there were like five to 10 openings that I was looking at faculty positions, which was considered a ton. Um, and then that same year, uh, one of the top programs closed down because it's actually really expensive to run a marriage and family therapy doctoral program. Um, and so the like Dean or whatever was just like, this what's is the expensive part money paying for the paying for the, the grad student. Paying for the on-campus clinic and then the supervision of students requires a lot of hours of a professor. So it's, it's building heavy, it's staff heavy, and it doesn't produce very many students. Hmm. So, but all of those professors from that institution went out and got all those jobs because they had years of experience being professors. So they're just at the top of the food chain. Yeah. And so you just don't know because the academic job market's so small, uh, you just have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, it, at least there, there's a market that can sustain itself away from academia. Sure. So like if Absolutely. every school decided like, hey, we're not going to do any sort of therapy, we're not going to do anything in 
and health. Like, you just go out and have a clinic. You're good to go, right? Yeah. But like in the classical music world, like this is what I was alluding to mm-hmm. is like if you actually look at what's going on, yeah. Um, like there were little tiny hints of just like okay, something about that. It, this is like important to note, but I don't hear anybody talking about this. And I feel like the addition of all these tiny little things made like for a very clear image. Here's what I mean. So I was telling you about the professor at UK. He was writing all this stuff um, primarily for like younger students, like I said, built off of fundamental um, technical and musical concepts. And uh, you look at that. He's one of the best in the world at what he does. You see, you look around the rest of the landscape, the others that are some of the greatest at what they do. They're either writing something like that or they're going out and trying to write like the next, you know, massive piece. Mm-hmm. And there's this massive delta in the middle of like, can't we just have music that like regular performers want and can perform where you don't have to have, because you think about percussion as a category, it's not an instrument, right? So there's thousands of instruments that technically anything you can crash, uh, shake, you know, Mm -hmm. strike any of those kind of things together, like is a percussion instrument, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be super expensive to be a percussionist. I mean, a set of timpani can be 30 grand to a hundred thousand dollars by themselves. A nice marimba that is, you know, stage quality could be like 14 grand. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it just keeps going and going. And then now you're talking about instruments that fill up this entire room just to store them. You can't even like practice on them, you Absolutely, know? Yeah. So it just gets like way crazy. Um, so I kept asking like, why, why are these things happening? You know? Um, and it's like, if you're really looking at it, the more that you rise in grad school, the more you kind of get plugged into what the faculty are really doing and thinking and what's important to them Absolutely. as a teacher. Yeah. And as, as a person that needs a job, not a, as a teacher or not as your professor, but as a person that that's an employee, you know, creative activity is one of the things you got to do on a regular basis for your seven years journey of trying to be a tenured professor. So part of creative activity would be composing music, mm-hmm. giving clinics, doing all these things. So the undergrads are looking at the professors or actually the undergrads are looking at grad students at that next rung, what should I be doing? Cause that's where I'm going to be next. Right? right. The grad students are looking at the professors because that's where I'm going to be. Right. So everybody's looking basically at the professors at the end of that food chain. And the undergrads are like, Oh, I should be endorsed by major companies. I should be giving clinics. I should be doing all these things. And it's like, but should you really, or why is that actually going on? Why does this set of behaviors exist? Mm-hmm. Well, so they can get tenure, Right. So that means the real motivation for doing it isn't necessarily because that's what the community wants, the industry wants. Sure. They don't even want to do it necessarily. Yeah. But they have to, to check the boxes to get tenure. Hmm. So a lot of the behaviors going on has nothing to do with anything that anybody wants to be doing, but it's all driven by things that people have to do. And it's the influential people that have to do those things that are driving the rest yeah. of the ship. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So, you know, you start thinking about that. It's like, okay. And then you look at it and it's like, when you're in your four walls, you talk about how important what you're doing is the, the percussion things that you're doing would be. 
And people were like, yeah, uh, music should be in every classroom, right? I mean, that's one of the biggest things that people talk about. Mm -hmm. Like, it's as important as English and math and science and other stuff. Mm -hmm. Those same people want to push them to play instruments that have not been on the radio and not in pop culture in 50 years, you know? I mean, when's the last time the average person listened to a clarinet besides being in, you know, some jazz group in like the 50s? Right. You've heard it in soundtracks, and that's about it. You don't even know what that instrument is. You just go, oh, that's pretty, <laughs> you know? So, like, trying to push music as a super popular or a super important concept and then rejecting the music that the kids actually know and can appreciate and want to be part of things that you hear on the radio today mm -hmm. that include guitars and singing and drum sets and things of that nature. Right. Like those things get shunned because they're commercial and what do they do? They try to install this classical thing that the average person on the street doesn't really care about. Right. That's evidenced by the dwindling audiences and the orchestras that keep shutting down, you know? Yeah. So um, you have that sort of divide of like they're, they're in their own vacuum in these institutions, like hyping each other up. Like, yeah, classical music. Yeah, we should do this. We should do that. Yeah. And there's not enough awareness that like most people don't care about mm -hmm. that. So they try things like, I don't know if you've seen this, but they do things. They've done this for probably 20 years now, Beethoven and blue jeans. So they used to think that mm. the classical orchestral experience was a turnoff because of the tuxedo and the stuffiness and the vibe. Interesting. Which idea. I get. So yeah. they're like, yeah, well just wear whatever you want. That's the premise behind that. Yeah. So let's take the stuffiness away, wear whatever you want. You're still going to shut up and be quiet. And you're going to watch these instruments performed by people you don't know composers you've not heard of maybe mm -hmm. on instruments you've never heard cool yeah you didn't fix the real problem yeah the main thing <laughs> you know still there. people don't give a shit what you gotta wear i don't know can i cuss yeah oh, okay <laughs> like people don't give a shit about that you know absolutely like it it's the you're fixing the window dress like that's you're not fixing the real issue here yeah so anyway they continue to have issues and then you know, here at Lexville, I think it's actually leading a lot of things, uh, especially the former music director, Scott Terrell, who's now at LSU. Um, but like we were playing out at the Legend Stadium, playing things like Harry Potter and yeah. like with the movie playing and you're playing mm -hmm. the music, right? Um, Picnic at the Pops. I don't know how many things like um, Bugs Bunny at the Symphony 2, I think was like the first thing that we did. Mm. There's um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, and did Star Wars, all sorts of stuff. That's a good idea. Those are actually bridging that gap. Right. Because it's pop culture coming in here. Mm -hmm. People can dress how they want, act like they want. The music isn't the center, but it is at the same time. We're all here because it's technically a musical event and a showing of, a mo of the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's really kind of selling the importance of the orchestra and the role of the orchestra. Because imagine Star Wars without it mm -hmm. and no John Williams. hundred percent. Because you actually can see, because you see them, right, at the, yeah. those events. You're sitting on the stage and the movie's behind them. Yeah. yeah so they're right in genius. front of you the whole time. That's absolutely genius. Yeah. So I feel like that's been pretty successful. And um, Lex Phil's been doing that for years, which yeah. is really cool. Um, 
And another part of that particular thing is like, when you walk on stage for a rehearsal and they bust out the classics, it's like, cool, we're going to play this Mozart 39 symphony. And it's like very high classical, very, what you would imagine to be classical music, this is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so very hoity-toity, that sort of thing. Um, there's a vibe in the room. There's a vibe in the room of like, of elevation, of yeah. expectation. Also kind of felt like nervousness in the room. And just like, frankly, stick up your butt kind of vibe. Yeah. You know? And I'm talking in rehearsal. There's no audience here. You're not on stage, you know, you're mm -hmm. rehearsing. But there's still something that's like arrogant about the room. And it just, like, you could see that in people's faces and how they interact and that kind of thing. Flip that and you're going to a Star Wars rehearsal so that you mm -hmm. can play, you know, at the end of the week with the movie. And everybody is happy. Everybody's loving this. There's yeah. smiles everywhere. It's a totally chill thing. We're all having a great time and we haven't played a note of music yet. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll take note of that. Where does mm -hmm. that come from? So we're pushing all this classical stuff <laughs> right. that even the people in the room, which are the people that are most invested in this community, don't seem to genuinely enjoy. Yeah. But then when we go to play the, the film music, everybody's genuinely interested in this but we reject it out of commercialism when it comes to like the private studio. Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. You know, there in, at the end of the day, I think it's just so much of like, well, I don't want to go against what is traditionally done. Who am I to question this? So sure. we're going to keep doing the old thing. And it's like, everybody has that same thought, but nobody wants to really say it out loud together. Like, Hey, maybe we should question why we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I, I have countless kind of things, anecdotes, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it feels like your perspective on. I hope I'm not rambling, by the way. No. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I hope that it's, I'm trying to give context. No, I think, I think it's good context. And I think it's like a, kind of like a microcosm of academia in general. Um, you know, obviously this is a certain segment of, academia and higher education, but I think many of those themes are reflected across other fields. And so I guess, I think my next question is, mm -hmm. so it sounds like your perspective towards what you're studying was changing, your perspective towards uh, the kind of like overall market for classical music, and then maybe your attitudes about, you know, how to get tenure and that process and that that started to seem a little less maybe ideal. Um, so when did you start thinking about other opportunities? Because I know you went to grad school because you wanted to teach, mm -hmm. right? So when did you start thinking about, well, maybe I should do something besides what I've been planning to do for years? Probably my second year, late first year, second year of my DMA. Mm -hmm. So like 2011, something like that. Okay. 2011? No. When did the social media thing like pop up in your head? So that was, I'd always, I mean, I joined Facebook in like 2005. Because remember, Facebook 
like it started as a invite only thing and then it was yeah. colleges only and then you can invite high school students and then it was students and then it was everybody mm-hmm. it's like this progression um i joined when it was college only i think and so that was like the first i mean i was on myspace but didn't really care sure uh had the like live journal account back in the day or uh, Zanga or whatever one. those things are. I don't even remember them anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like those things were on my radar, but they were just like, you know, fun things. Um, I started seeing opportunities of like sharing stuff, connecting with people that like, well, high school is over. We've now scattered around the country, going to different schools or in jobs or whatever. And so very quickly, it's obvious the value of social being able to stay connected with people that you know. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is back in the day of chronological feeds and things. So you actually got to see what your friends were posting. Right. Every friend, doesn't matter whether you engaged with them or not. If they posted something, it was at the top of your feed the moment mm-hmm. it posted. I remember those days. So, which is what people have been screaming to have return. And I don't yeah, understand I don't, why they want. It's wild. It'll go back. Um. But anyway, so like that value of like connection was pretty clear. Um, and then I think over time it was kind of obvious, like watching other people in the, the industry music world, uh, using that as a networking tool. And, um, I mean, over time I just kind of figured out that like, if you want to meet or know somebody, go engage with their content. This is like, at this point, this is like an old, old trope, mm-hmm. but like, at the time it was something I was like, Oh, I think I just tripped over something cool. Yeah. But like go engage with your content for a little bit and then find a way to get in a one-on-one interaction, you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather than just go in for the, the ask immediately. Right. Um, cause it's always easier to ask somebody that, you know, rather than to go up to a total stranger. Right. right? So anyway, started seeing some of those kind of early things and then really getting to, um, I started noticing that like the more that you post, the more people think that like you're successful. Mm-hmm. So like, I was like, sure, I'm going to post a lot. Yeah. I'm rehearsing. I'm doing this. I almost treated it like a vlog of sorts, not thinking of it that way, but looking back, that's so kind of how it functioned. Yeah. If that makes sense. You're posting your personal journey, like as a grad student and musician. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So it'd be like, oh, Pittsburgh, what in the world is going on? So I'd give my two cents on that or whatever, you know, or I'm going to go watch the game. Mm-hmm. Now, right off to the practice room. Oh, man, measures 23 to 207 of this piece or a bear or whatever. It's a quick clip of me playing or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I'm a, like I said, kind of like a vlog, more like just documenting and putting out there what I'm doing. Um, and I think it was easy to see that like the more people that would post, cause I was seeing this of other people too. And I had this opinion, like if I saw other musicians performing or playing or documenting what they're doing, I had this perception that there's like, they got a lot going on. Must be mm. good. Right. That's perception we all have. Absolutely. Um, and so anyway, just like kept doing that sort of thing, get to UK and have some of these conversations with professors because a professor there is one of the best in the world at what he does. That means he's surrounded by other great people. So like the top people from Yamaha corporation, the musical 
company would come through and just hang because they've been oh, buddies for 20 years. Yeah. So that got me in the same room because I'm his doctoral student, you know? Um, so I got to hear like what real world-class leaders in that industry were thinking and, mm. and how that all like the behind the scenes yeah. really worked, you know? Um, one of the things the professor at UK also would say a lot was like, um, you know, these companies really need content all the time, which I think is to look back. I think it's funny to think of like a 50 something year old person leading the content conversation in an industry. Yeah. You know, so he really was like planting that seed to do even more, but with the strategy, because we were talking of like, how do you get endorsements? What's that like? Cause he's got his name all over music that he's written, but also he's got lines of, sticks and mallets with a company with his name on it that he helped to, uh, he's got two, sure. uh, two patents in the community as well. Um, so yeah. And you know, Yamaha would come and be like, Hey, here, test this out. Give us your opinions. And Ty, you should change this, this and that. And they would go do it. You know, like that's the kind of influence. Um, so of course what he says is going to be pretty, impactful to me interesting right? that so like, he already saw the content piece for them yeah well and that was the thing is like okay well choose the if you want to be endorsed think about some of the companies that uh you want to be on their radar mm-hmm. and go play with their stuff make sure you actually like it and if you do take photos videos of you using it tag them in it on social and then they'll see it and you know, mm. eventually they reshare and that sort of thing and works. Yeah. You know, so um, that whole game started getting really interesting. And actually in 2012, I think is when like live streaming came to Facebook. And mm. so we were the first program to live stream performances. Cause I was thinking like half these idea, kids yeah. are coming from you or from uh, Texas mm-hmm. to UK because Texas great. Um, K through 12 music programs down there. Right. And this being a great school for percussion and stuff, like it's a natural connection. Mm-hmm. So I was like, there's a lot of, and my family's in South Carolina, you know, it's like, there's a lot of families that can't be here to watch this performance. Why don't we just put it on Facebook? So, I mean, it was pretty basic kind of setup. It was like just camera connected to a computer. We didn't even have uh, external mics. So it was like the built in, computer mic oh man which you know is better than nothing better than nothing you know (laughs) still get to see your little johnny up on the stage doing his thing or her thing right so um yeah anyway like these things touching the tools and pressing the buttons and really starting to uncover that was like you know this is really fascinating like getting deeper into intent into content creation for my own needs also Mm -hmm. for helping the studio um when i was teaching at schools like starting accounts to help share what was going on there uh because well Mm. what way do you get more funding when you're teaching whether it's college or high school or something well you got to prove to the admin that you need the funding right like we have these things going on well instead of just chalking that up to a 10-minute meeting with your principal once a year and hoping to god that that 10 minute, like that's a lot of pressure on a 10 minute conversation Absolutely. to try to get funding. So if you could prove your worth and value throughout the entire year mm-hmm. by just documenting it and showing it, 
then yeah. it's there. Makes you know, sense to me. Okay. So yeah. So I was having a lot of fun doing that stuff. And I was also getting um, you know, having those questions over time of like, is this really what I want to do? Do I really want to be in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina or mm-hmm. Kansas? Um, why are we even really doing some of these things? Because like if we're here to actually serve, why aren't we serving the students the way they want to be served? Why are we sort of dictating from the top? I mean, I understand you having experience and having hindsight and whatever, and being able to hand that down in the form of curriculum to help Mm -hmm. form, you know, the fundamentals behind a student. But where does creativity come back in and where do they get to be themselves rather than just dictated at, you know? And, um, yeah, there's just too many factors that weren't fun anymore, (laughs) you know, like at at the basis of all this, like, I want to help. I'm here to be a teacher. I'm here to help them do whatever they want. And, um, the system is not built for that, Mm -hmm. you know, because at the end of the day, it's all about dollars. So we're not driving towards the same thing. Yeah. And so that's a big friction, you know? So, and also at the same ish time, my wife was uh, doing some retail work. So I was helping her taking the same concepts of sharing what you're doing and like absolutely putting that out there. So people know that you're there, they know what it's all about. They know where to find you. They make a connection with you. You're selling before you ask, you know? Um, and so anyway, like long story short, not really short, but long story long, I guess. Um, I was having more fun helping her and some of the programs build their social stuff mm-hmm. than doing any of the musical stuff. And so that's, and at the same time, I was also like, okay, I've got this big checklist of things I want to be able to do at some point in my career. Perform uh, with an orchestra, um, teach, write music, give clinics. I mean, I was also doing like virtual clinics, like in 2014. I mean, people only started doing virtual teaching in COVID. Right. You know, so like really doing these things ahead of the time. Um, I was having fun just doing all that stuff. Yeah. So it only made sense. Oh, and that's what I was getting at with that checklist. I basically checked all of those boxes. As a doctoral student, I didn't even graduate yet. It's teaching drum corps, teaching college, teaching all these things. They, were they at the like, top places? No. I didn't necessarily aspire to be at the top places for each one of those things. But I just wanted the experience of doing those things. And, um, and it's like, cool. Well, I've made it, if you will, like that list happen. Am I fulfilled? And the answer is, well... Yeah, like it's fun. But then when I really looked at it, I was like, but my wallet is absolutely empty. Yeah. It's like I'm teaching 26 contact hours with students, which is four hours away from four out full time teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 26 contact hours, teaching drum corps, teaching orchestra, playing an orchestra, traveling, doing clinics, doing all this stuff. And then it's like, I have $1,800 a month in my pocket. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. Like, 
what in the world did I get in debt and do all these things for uh, to make what I could have made just working at Walmart part-time. Yeah. And so then not only is it just like a career question, now it's a life question, you know, like what are you going to do about that? Hmm. Um, Does simply just going to better versions of those things that are on that checklist, does that really fill the gap financially? No, because it's still a creative space that relies heavily on the institution to pay you. Everything else is a nonprofit, right? You know, orchestras are basically nonprofits with grants and other things that help and community things um, to help pay for that, you know? So they're always penny pinching. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's like a very hard stop at like where you can grow and, and get to. Yeah. So then you have to have real questions of like, okay, well, crap. I've mm-hmm. got a mountain of debt. My doctorate was paid. Now, this is wild. A doctorate's paid for. Undergrad was essentially paid for. Paid out of pocket for my master's. In like heavy six figures still in debt. Like, yeah. what? How in the world does anybody else do this? Yeah. I, you know, like this is wild. Um, and I'll just, they'll write anyway. those loans for whoever wants them. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just you press the button, right? Yeah. Do you want to accept or decline? Accept. Cool. Well, that was easy to spend $84,000 on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, anyway, it's like eventually you go through all this stuff and you have to have, you're forced into having real conversations. Like, I hate having $1,800 in my pocket and that's it. Yeah. And I'm checking all the boxes. It's like, this can't be, eh, this ain't it. <laughs> you know? So. You put that in the conversation of like, okay, so if the only real thing for growth is I know I'm not talented enough to go play at a world-class orchestra that's going to be able to pay me six figures. So that's not a journey. I'm not really interested in building up a private studio and like going through that hustle all the time and sitting there begging parents for like $40. Now, now I'm not doing that. So, uh, you know, rising the ranks in academia, Mm, it's like the only one that kind of makes sense. And then you look at that and you're like, but the best people are getting the crappiest jobs because of tenure, right? Nothing's available. So it's like, what in the world is this? Yeah. And then you look, they're like constantly pumping out more kids into the system. It's like, we are Mm -hmm. diluting the crap out of this pool. It's wild. It is. So anyway, it's like, okay, so even if I do go to a great place, what am I going to be doing? recruiting the whole time i'm a full-time recruiter yep so yeah i'm get more butts in the seats yeah so anyway i hope this whole thing i've been yapping about for like 45 minutes is becoming clear of like that was not fun anymore because yeah. it's not musical it's not creative it's nothing it's aggravating actually <laughs> you know and it doesn't make money yeah it does not and it's like also i sort of mentioned this before it's like And even if we are, like, is there even an audience out there that's watching? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even get Singletary to be full for a concert band performance. Sorry to call it out, but it is what it is. There's like 1,500 seats over there. You can't even get the area band directors who are in this area, the most vested in that community. You can't get them to show up to college performance mm-hmm. and somehow you think that you're going to put 1500 butts in the seat 
playing some music by doesn't even matter if it's new music because yeah. it's all foreign to everybody. Nobody cares, mm-hmm. you know. So what are we really doing here? It's really a training ground. Yeah, you know, like, and then uh, the number of students in the studio, like each studio, is not dictated by the amount of talented students and who should be there and who is qualified based on auditions. It's based on the number of seats that the wind ensemble and concert band and stuff have. So your studio is outfitted to outfit the band. Mm -hmm. So now you have warm bodies in your program so that the band can have warm bodies in the seats. Like what is, what are we doing? This doesn't even begin to make sense. Like this is all a system of BS and none of it's musical. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So, so I, I, I think I understand kind of like the, the mindset that you were in kind of the, like the new perspective you were getting. When did you really dive into the social media thing and get your first like real client? Hmm. It might've been like 2014. I mean, I was in school still. Yeah. It might've been like 2014, 2015. And of course, you know, you start close to what you know absolutely, and what you're known for. So people knew that I was doing things with social and live streaming and other stuff. Um, and so when you put it out there or you ask other musicians, like, you want to help with this or, or, you know, you get that reputation that you're doing stuff in tech, they'll come ask you like, Hey, can you help mm-hmm. us do this thing? We want to be able to do that. What gear do you use for that? You know, all that kind of stuff. So it was, I don't, honestly, I don't even remember some of the first accounts, um, but they were musically related. Absolutely. So, you know, just like anybody else, uh, you got to have a portfolio at first before mm-hmm. you can really go and like tell somebody like, Hey, you should trust me with your dollars to right. build your business. Right. Yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't actively doing this, thinking this act like in the moment, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I was doing musical things cause it was fun, you right. know, and pairing it with social. So that was, mm-hmm. I was building my own opportunities. And then as that journey that we'd been talking about for an hour, it was transpiring. It's like, okay, well, I've been doing this for musical things. This is fun. This is way better than being in a classroom and all the nonsense over there. So I'm going to do more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, getting your hands dirty, working and understanding, again, not doing this actively, but it just is a byproduct of working, <laughs> like understanding processes and what other tools are available for me to be able to do this job better. You know, and so really locked down on some of that stuff, got confident with it, had a bit of a portfolio and uh, was then able to just, you know, pitch people. What was away your first from music? Like, big pitch, either in music or outside of music? I don't even know. I wouldn't call it a big pitch, but I would call it like the first like real one away from music. Um, it's still actually a client. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I was at the Bourbon Festival in Bardstown. And this is when I was like really actively looking to try to do something not purposefully away from music, but just that wasn't musically related, if that makes sense. And I saw this booth and I was like, hey, this booth is like, because you go there and it's a lot of like mom and pop kind of things. And it looks like mom and pop. But there was a booth that was like put together and had their crap thought out. I was like, interesting. Looked up the brand on Instagram 
Um, and actually, I think I pitched Facebook ads first. Hmm. This is back when like doing ads and stuff was still really big because ads yeah. were like really actually starting. Um, and so I just sent a DM on Instagram and was like, Hey, I saw that you guys aren't running any ads. I'd love to help. Like I just saw your booth at the bourbon festival and thought your stuff was great. I'd love to just help. And I think I even offered to like provide some advice. Hmm. So working for free basically. Absolutely. Right. So like yeah. they were, and immediately got a response cause they were sitting in the back of the booth, like on their phone doing stuff, you know? And they were like, Oh wow. Great. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear which I I really don't remember the whole sure, thing, but absolutely. it was basically like, yeah, give us your advice. So I typed out some advice in the DMs. You're like, wow, that's great. Do, do you do this? Like, can you help us? And then, yep. <laughs> so help them. And then after you get that as part of the portfolio, the first mm-hmm. one really away from music, then you can go and uh, sell other people. Yeah. So then it became retail and some other things. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you get the idea for branded 78 and why 78? So 78 is a nonsense number that really doesn't mean anything other than the, they were actually three of us founders, okay. co-founders. Um, we all, okay, well, let me just back up. We all had a mutual friend that put us in the same room, knew that we were all doing things with content, mm-hmm. but we all had different angles of how we did it and what we were up to. And, uh, yeah, so we had that initial meeting that included the mutual friend. And then the three of us had another meeting without the mutual friend. (laughs) And we were like, Hey, we kind of all fill each other's needs. Mm -hmm. Why don't we do something together? So that was like 2018, I think. And, um, yeah, cause I was doing client work on my own and, um, like one person was heavy in sales, another heavy in like storytelling. And I was heavy and like the technical and like Mm -hmm. the doing side, the creative part. And so we put our heads together. We were like, you know, we all really subscribe to the idea of being really fast and not getting bogged down in minutia and things that really don't matter, like names, brands, like people think that that really matters. It really doesn't. If your product is awesome, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I mean, look at like, some of these podcasts are out there. It's like Dave Portnoy and the BFF podcast. It's like, they it's look hideous because it's all on like zoom. It's like, yeah, the production doesn't matter if the value, whatever that value is. Absolutely. Is there. So anyway, um, we just went through names of like, what are some marketing type words that maybe should be in our name landed on branded? You mm-hmm. know, it, this may be like all of a 20 minute conversation, I think. I remember correctly. I love that actually. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it were branded something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and for some reason, I like the idea of having some sort of number. I don't even remember why that was a thing, but I was like, I think a number could be kind of cool. Yeah. Like how lame, this is like a middle school version of how to brand <laughs> something, right? It's um, like when you do your gamer tag and it's yeah. taken, they just slap a number on it. Yeah. The it's like branded 87 because I was born in 87. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we were like, uh, what numbers do you have in your birthday? We all had seven and eight, so that's where that came from. Makes sense. <laughs> Black and white was easy. Yeah. You know? I I was like, okay, how do we justify it if, if we have to for any reason? It's like, well, we're doing a lot with paid ads at the moment, so black and white with data like you know mm-hmm. <laughs> data is black and white like you either sold it or you didn't what's or the black whatever. and white part 
Sorry, just, just like your colors. Slogan? Oh, you're coloring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Since the black and white. Well, this is because video production always being in the background and trying mm. not to stand out. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's where that came from. That's cool. I will have to run here in just a few minutes Absolutely. for a sales call. But. So can you just uh, to finish up, walk us yeah. through? Sorry, what? I know I was very wordy about the other things. No, but. it's good. It's good, and I think. I think it's great to have more drawn out conversations because there are earlier grad students who just haven't had the like the idyllic image of grad school kind of yeah. shattered for them yet. And I, you know, I think it's better to do that earlier rather than later. Well, I don't necessarily want to, my intent wouldn't be necessarily to like shatter that, but oh, well, to that's provide, intent. well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in with good reason for the sure. most part, you know, like uh, there's just a lot of crap yeah. and I, I even told you this first time we met um, the entire process, like I went and defended my dissertation and then, you know, they're like, Oh, I handshake you're officially a doctor. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and then from there it's like just paperwork. Yep. You know, and fees, but that entire fiasco, like the people that are supposed to mentor you had no idea what that order was, who you're supposed to talk to. Mm -hmm. They know that they're supposed to receive things from you, but they don't know who you get them from. And so they can't help you figure that out. So anyway, like my only advice, actually not only, but primary advice for somebody, at least maybe at the end of their journey in grad school would be like, you have to drive the entire ship. And actually I would, I'd want to know that from the get, you know, yeah, you're about to get into something that all the professors know that there's, they have some role in, but there's no like master. Well, now there is at the music school, but it's probably not even relevant anymore at this point. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what I was saying. Like when I got to the end of my journey, I put together a whole thing of like, here was the timeline and here's who, who I had to go to, to get this paper by this date, because right. it was never like a particular date. It was always a window of time. Mm -hmm. We need to have this piece of paper before like six weeks before graduation day. Mm -hmm. we need this one two weeks before you get that paper put in. And so yeah. it's a whole lot of like making your own deadlines, yeah. you know, based off of windows and nothing firm. So once I put that whole thing together about where do you get this? Do you go to the grad school? Do you go to the director's office? Do you go over here for that from your major professor? Do you get that from your committee? Put that into a whole thing and presented that and gave that to them. And I don't know if they officially used it, but they were like, this is gold. We need this because yeah. we don't have anything like this. And I'm like, this is what you do. How do you not have this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well-run so, business would have it. Yeah. Speaking well, of well-run businesses. So for grad students who, let's say there's a handful of grad students out there who do want to build either their own social media brand or someone else's. Mm -hmm. I know science communication is big with my followers and um, side hustles is another thing. So for people wanting to start and just building their own brand on social media, what mm -hmm. are the like top three things that you recommend they do? I would say number one, just document what you're doing on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And don't assume that what you're doing is too mundane or not interesting because there's an audience out there that does give a shit. Yeah, they do. <laughs> so, I mean, think about the things that you would talk about with your colleagues or your classmates or whatever, like those people exist elsewhere. And that's the beautiful thing about social is you put it out there and you're, you know, you can find each other over time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it will be interesting to people. Maybe not, you know, 40 million people. It might be 40, but that's the 40 that you care about. Right. You know? Um, so I would start with just documenting whatever you're doing. That could literally be just opening up your phone and like turning the camera around and showing like, Hey, I just made this thing and walk me through how I did it, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm not going to pretend to know like what happens in labs and all that stuff, you know, but like, I don't know, open up the phone and talk about what you're trying to make happen and what you did today to work towards that goal. What did you fail at? Why did it? Oh, now I got to go back and like, I tried this thing. I thought it was going to work. It didn't. Here's why it didn't work. Here's what I'm going to do about it and Mm -hmm. try to pivot and do this instead. I'll try it out tomorrow. And then tomorrow you open your phone. Hey, I tried that thing. I I said it worked great. Here's this other part that maybe didn't work so well. Literally just that. Yep. And you're going to find other people that are like-minded real fast. And um, again, depending on what you do, it might be two people. It could be 200 million. Mm-hmm. Um, but all you care about is that they're actually vested in what you're doing, you know? So yeah. I would just, number one is document stuff. And the hardest part about any of that is to remember to even do it. Yep. <laughs> so make, make, yeah, you have create. to actually, you have to actually do, do it. it. You have yeah. to actually open your phone and do it. Nobody yeah. like we're here in a, a studio with a lot of equipment and stuff. None of this matters. Not for what we're talking about. If like number one to get started, open your phone. It doesn't matter how dark or grainy or whatever. And just press the buttons. Yeah. You got to learn the behavior of doing this. Make it a priority. Understand that this is networking in 2023. Yeah. This is the same as going to some restaurant for a networking event. (laughs) You know, social is constant all the time. And so, yeah. Um, I would say also trying to like hype each other up a little bit, like go find other people that are doing similar things to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, be part of the community. Don't just think that you're going to put all of this content out there and that people are going to come to you. You got to go to them as well. Yeah. The first word in social media is social. And we always forget that aspect of you got to actually respond to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to go and introduce yourself first in a lot of conversations, you know, I know it's 2023 and a lot of people can't converse anymore. Um, but like, yeah, like you have to remember that it is a two way thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't even know. That's like two, that, that would be the most fundamental thing. When do you need to duck out? It's in 14 after 30 seconds, 30 seconds. Okay. What is the one thing that grad students should do before they graduate? shake every hand in your grad school yeah, and know who they are and not just shake their hand once and never say, Hey again. All right. Because networking, uh, your network is everything. That's how I've built branded 78. We don't really have a proactive sales mechanism at the moment. Uh, All of it is brand building off of, you know, relationship building, getting in the right rooms with people that have influence and uh, sort of leveraging their relationships with people. So, Know everybody because you never know when they're going to come back in your life. Yeah. Awesome. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to chat with you Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I look forward to having you in the future. Cool. We'll do it. All right. All right. Let me go uh, stop this live stream. Cool. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. 
If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time.